Well, good morning, everybody, and, and welcome to my study here at home. And uh, my apologies for all of this uh, mess, but COVID just kind of caught us unaware, so here we are. Um, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning for our time in God's Word, the book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. Acts chapter 16, verses 36 to 41. And I'm going to read and then pray and get into it. And the Word of God says, After some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his precious word. Let's pray. Loving Father, this morning we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things out of your law. Father, we pray that you would incline our heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Father, we pray as we would work our way through this interesting paragraph of Scripture, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Father, we pray that you would greatly increase the influence and the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. Father, we pray that there would be a greater love for you and for the church and for each other. Father, we pray also for a greater desire for godliness and holiness to grow in the things of God. And we ask you, Lord, for your help now as we work our way through this text. Teach us your law, we pray, O God. Revive us according to your word, we pray, O God, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, this morning I want us to just take a bit of a recap of history of these three main characters in our text. Their history brings an interesting perspective to the text. And first mentioned of these three in the Bible's history is, of course, John Mark. And although he's not named, most commentators and scholars would suggest that the young man who fled naked into the night at Jesus' arrest in the garden in Mark 14, verses 51 and 52, was the author of the gospel, John Mark himself. He'd been following at a short distance, yet he was close enough to the action that they could grab him, or at least his linen clothing, which he left behind as he fled away. He next appears in Acts chapter 11, returning from Jerusalem with his cousin Barnabas, and then Saul also. In Acts 13, he travels with Barnabas and Saul on their first missionary journey, but early in the trip, he leaves or as Paul says here, he had withdrawn and not continued in the work. Now here in Acts 15, it appears that he is willing to go back into the work with Barnabas and Paul. And then there's Barnabas. In Acts 4, verse 36, we meet Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who is called Barnabas by the apostles, meaning the son of encouragement. He has just sold his property and given the money to the church, and it's in Acts 9 and verse 27 that Barnabas brings the newly converted but still much feared uh, former persecutor of the church named Saul of Tarsus to the Jerusalem apostles 
And he tells them of Saul's early preaching ministry. Barnabas is living up to his name, which means the son of encouragement. It's in Acts 11, 22 and 23 that Barnabas is sent by the Jerusalem church to Antioch to investigate the reports of the great numbers of conversions happening there. And he encourages them to be remain to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Shortly after that, Barnabas goes in search of Saul and brings him from Tarsus to Antioch, and together they minister the word to the church for about a whole year. At the end of Acts 11, he and Saul are sent with a gift of money to the impoverished Jerusalem church, and they return with Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, in tow. In Acts 13, Barnabas and Saul are separated and sent into the work of ministry by the Holy Spirit, and they take John Mark with them. But sadly, for reasons we're not told, John Mark leaves and returns to Jerusalem. In Acts 14, the mission work continues, although Saul and Paul, Saul, or who's called Paul, takes a more leading role in the preaching evangelistic work. In Acts 15, we have the dispute caused by the Judaizers and the council in Jerusalem regarding Gentile salvation and the inclusion of the Gentiles as equal members of God's household. The council concludes with a letter sent from Jerusalem elders to the Gentile churches, and it's sent in the hands of Barnabas and Paul and Silas and Judas, which brings us to our text. We have the decision made by Paul and Barnabas to return to the places they had proclaimed the word of the Lord and to see how all the brothers are doing. And true to his nickname and nature, Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them. And Barnabas again is living up to his name, which means the encourager. And lastly, of the three men, there is Paul. And we all know his story well enough that I just want to highlight two key facts about his and Barnabas's history. In Acts 9, it's Barnabas who takes the risk and goes and brings Saul to the Jerusalem apostles and reintroduces him to them as their newly converted gospel-preaching brother in Christ. It's Barnabas in Acts 11, while at Antioch, uh, who sees an opportunity to include the well-trained, zealous young Hellenistic Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus into the ministry of the thriving Antioch church. And once again, he goes and gets him and brings him to the work. It's the very same attitude and action that Barnabas now displays towards John Mark. What's sad is that while the devil cannot manage to disrupt and divide Paul and Barnabas and the church through that doctrinal controversy in verses 1 to 35 of Acts 15, he does manage to divide them on the basis of the pride of these two godly, gifted, called, and equipped men. Both of them are passionate about the unique type of ministry that God has given each of them. In the most natural reading of the text, they disagree sharply so that they separate from each other. And that's pride at work. Neither is willing to give in in deference to the other. They allow pride to separate them from each other. And the question that kind of went through my mind as I read the passages was, did Luke really have to include this event in the history of the church? I mean, if you take out verses 36 to verse 39 and just start with verse 40, it flows quite naturally. You, you would almost not even notice the difference. 
would have been so terrible if he had left out this somewhat embarrassing account of these two great men of God and their disagreement and separation. But Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has included this account, and as embarrassing as it is, it's useful, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we, the people of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, as Second Timothy 3.16 tells us. So this sad, somewhat embarrassing paragraph holds some very poignant lessons for us. So what is the overall message that it conveys? And as I sat and thought and meditated and kind of battled back and forth and was talking with Heather about it on the phone and we sort of threw some ideas back and forth, the answer I came up with is this. And I would suggest that the message for us from this text is that God works through still maturing ministers. He worked through Paul who still had much to be learned and much maturity to gain. He worked through Barnabas, who still had much left to learn and much maturity to gain. God later worked through John Mark, so that as Paul himself will later say, he was very useful for Paul. He was useful to the Colossian church, as Paul commended him to them. And God inspired him to author what is likely the first written-out gospel that bears his name. He was useful to the whole church. In that sense, God likewise works through still maturing ministers today. He's working through you and I, and we all have this uh, things left to learn. We all have maturity still to gain in this Christian walk. So listen, every man and woman of God who is still alive has not yet reached the full level of their sanctification nor Christian maturity. The only Christian men and women who are fully mature with nothing left to learn are those who have died and gone on to glory. Christ has indeed finished his work in them. No minister, no matter how experienced he or she is, no matter how well-educated, supported, connected, counseled, styled and stable, is free from occasionally blowing it. Every minister still living still has much to learn. So then, from this text of Scripture, I would suggest that there is first a warning to heed. There is a sin to avoid. Thirdly, there are examples to follow. And fourthly, there are reasons to glorify God, not men. So first of all, there is a warning to heed. And brothers and sisters in Christ, beware of idolizing prominent, successful Christian leaders. One of the unique characteristics of the Bible in comparison with other ancient Near Eastern literature is its absolutely clear, unvarnished, warts and all portrayal of its human characters. The sad and embarrassing account of these two greatly used by God men who sharply disagree about John Mark serves as a great reminder that all Christian leaders have clay feet. Beloved, Beware of elevating any Christian leader above what is necessary due to their role as elders or leaders in the church. We live, as you can all see from watching YouTube or the news or Instagram, if you do that kind of thing, uh, we live in a celebrity crazy culture. Tragically, that celebrity culture has crept into the church And too many of us follow just a bit too closely and a bit uncritically our favorite teacher, preacher, pastor, or writer. Remember what some 
smart fellow said uh, sometime, I just remember the quote, I don't know who said it, but he went like this, the very best of men are but men at their very best. Remember, at the end of the day, all men and women through whom God works are chosen by him. They're saved by his grace. We're filled and empowered by his spirit. They're loving, following, and serving His Son as their Lord and Savior. They're armed with His Word, and they're doing good works that He prepared for them. All the genuine good that is accomplished through those men and women, through all ministers, regardless of their celebrity status or not, is God's work alone for which He must and does get the glory. We are so privileged to be included by God in doing His work. So, beloved, as you read this little story and you see this sad moment where both of them react in pride and selfish ambition, we see a warning to us, beware of idolizing prominent and successful, quote-unquote, successful Christian ministers. Remember that God does not work through perfect ministers because there simply are none available. God is only working through still maturing ministers. That's all he has to work with. And it's a warning that we must heed. Secondly, there is a sin to avoid. We see whether we want to admit it or not, however good their desires and motives may have been, which we'll look at shortly, these two godly, zealous Christian men allowed themselves for a short time to slip into acting and behaving according to the flesh. Paul himself says in Galatians 5, verses 19 and 20, that the works of the flesh are evident, and they include dissensions or divisions. James says in James 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James 3.16, James says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Obviously, Paul and Barnabas didn't go to every vile practice, but there certainly was division and disorder. Both Paul and Barnabas in that moment had a single-minded desire for their plans to happen without any giving on either their part or the other person's part. And the result was a separation between these two partners in ministry, at least for a short time. And you know, this is one point, which is certainly for me. How easily do we, or do I, slip into acting according to the flesh, out of a selfish desire? I must have my own way. I think I know best, and so I push it relentlessly, and sometimes push right over others. Without regard for others, we cause divisions. We cause it in the church. We cause it in ministry. We cause it in friendships, in marriages, in partnerships. And then we, you know, we quickly write it off, excuse and dismiss it by saying, oh, well, you know, come on, don't be so rigid. We're only human. I mean, I said it myself a few minutes ago. We all have clay feet. This is just our one weakness. But, beloved... God calls us to something so much better and admittedly so much harder. God has in Christ set an example so much higher for us to follow. It is Christ who set his own desires aside in deference and submission to the will of his Father when he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, 
but thine be done. Years later, writing from prison, Paul exhorted the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I can't help but wonder, as I read those words, If as he wrote those lines, he thought back in sad memory to the day that he and Barnabas had sharply disagreed and had walked away in opposite directions from each other. Now we know by God's grace there's evidence in Scripture of reconciliation. But reconciliation later must not become permission to dispute and divide now if it gets us our own way. Brothers and sisters... Heed the warning of a sin to avoid, that of pride and selfish ambition that leads to disputes and divisions. And I say that for my benefit and yours, because I know how prone we are to it. Remember, God works through still maturing ministers, ministers who have moments of weakness and failure. The issue is not only that we sin, but even more so how we deal with that sin afterwards. We're going to see the evidence of their reconciliation at the end of the message. So thirdly, there are examples to follow. The ministers that God raises up, pastors and elders and deacons, are to have a certain level of maturity. 1 Timothy 3.16 warns us that they're not to be novices, not to be new to the faith, so that they do not become conceited and fall into the devil's condemnation of pride and vying for control. James 3 verse 1 warns that not many should become teachers because we know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So elders and deacons, Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders are to have a sufficient level of maturity that they're able to set a good example for those who are falling, especially when it becomes necessary to set an example of humbly seeking forgiveness and being reconciled to one another. Now in our text, we can see that Barnabas and Paul provide for us examples of ministry in two different perspectives that we can and we should follow. But follow with respect and understanding and in harmony with the other ministry perspectives and focuses that are out there. So taking these examples in the order of the text, first we see Paul's desire for the growth and strengthening of the churches as a whole. In verse 36, Paul wants to return with Barnabas and visit the brothers in every city where they had preached the gospel and see how they are doing. That is a shepherd's heart on display. One of the verses I memorized Uh, My annual leave was Acts 20, verses 28 to 31. And Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the whole flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Yes, I did cheat and look down and read a little bit. Uh, My memory isn't all that great, but I am working on it. Paul, as a church planning apostle and missionary, had a shepherd's heart that wanted to see the churches growing. And there is a need today in the church, as then, now, so, there's a need in the church today, as then, for men with a shepherd's heart to watch, to care for, to teach, to train, to lead, and to guide the whole flock of God, and to do it from a big picture perspective. 
May the Lord raise up in Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church men who love the Lord with all their heart, men who love God's word and strive to live in submission and obedience to it, men who love the sheep, even the unlovable ones, and who have a desire to see the church as a whole growing and steadfastly following the scriptures in obedience to them, obeying and honoring the Lord to the greatest possible degree. Men, I plead with you, be searching your hearts and the scriptures in prayer to see if the Lord would have you to serve in such a capacity. There is a need for more godly, maturing men to be elders and shepherds of the church who have that big picture perspective. But secondly, there's also Barnabas's desire here for the growth and strengthening of individual believers. Just as surely as Paul had a passion and a care to watch over, to teach and preach and exemplify God's word for the whole church, so also Barnabas has a passion and a care for individual believers, the sheep that others tended to overlook, like John Mark and like Saul himself many years earlier. Listen, ministry requires maturity, ongoing, growing maturity. And that maturity requires an investment of time and effort by older disciples, leaders, older disciples and leaders with younger disciples. Why is it that the biblical pattern for discipleship is not so much peer to peer, equal to equal, but elder to younger? Why is that? It's why is it more mature to less mature? It's because that's the only way it works. The more wise teach the less wise. I've been working on Proverbs chapter 2. I was planning to bring a message uh, this evening on it, but that's okay. Um, talking about a father speaking to his son, pleading with him to search for, to diligently seek for wisdom from God, to seek to understand the scriptures. It's the older teaching the younger. It's Moses with Joshua. It's Elijah and Elisha. It's Jesus with the disciples, older, teaching the younger. And here again, I have to stop and confess my deep gratitude to the Lord for sending Uncle Jack, Uncle Jack to spend time with me, teaching and helping and praying and encouraging this young, struggling carpenter who wanted to serve the Lord but felt desperately ill-equipped to do so. Still do. Ministry requires maturity. Paul chose Silas, a leading man among the brothers, as it says in Acts 15 and verse 2. Paul later chose Timothy, who was well spoken of by the brothers in Acts 16 and verse 2. Word ministry, preaching and teaching, requires a maturity. And scripture even warns about being teachers because they will receive the greater judgment. It's unwise to put young, inexperienced men and women into ministries that, that they'll, where they'll stumble They'll become discouraged and possibly abandon their faith and calling. This is a little side note. Uh, when I was in Bible school, I met a number of young people. They had a heart for the Lord. They desperately wanted to serve the Lord. I, I don't doubt their motives for a second. But as I watched them, young, very young, sitting in Bible school, working towards a master of divinity, planning to go out and become pastors in their early 20s, and I just kind of sat back and, and grieved partly. I grieved that they will go out, and so many of them, as I've seen, 
in real experience, go out and get so overloaded and so overwhelmed with the demands of ministry at such a young age that often they turn around, walk away. Some of them never go back to church. There's a requirement for ministry. But its maturity doesn't just happen. It doesn't just drop on us out of the sky. All of a sudden we have this amazing blessing of ministry. We're able to lead and shepherd and pastor a church. We're able to lead and teach Bible studies and young groups and all of that. It happens with time spent in training and equipping these young men who can become useful to the church and to God's purposes. And the reality is that God uses both public and private ministry and ministers to mature his people. Both are necessary. Neither can be disregarded. Don't expect one minister, one elder, that they can be all things to all peoples at all times. It's not possible. Different ministers have different emphases. Different elders have different focus points. And praise God that we're not all the same. That God raises up each of us and my weak areas are covered by their stronger ones and my strength covers their weaknesses. And together we are weakness balanced off by each other. And we're able to work together having different focuses but recognizing that harmony of those focuses as we work together to shepherd and lead the church. Look at the example of both these godly, passionate servants of the Lord. Their problem wasn't that one had the right perspective and the other one had the wrong one. No, not at all. The sad problem was that neither, for this sad moment, could see the necessity of both perspectives at work. Both, for this moment, behaved stubbornly and acted according to the flesh rather than according to the Spirit, and so they separated. But don't miss the examples that they provided which we can follow. God still uses, God still works through maturing ministers and praise God that he does or we would all be out of a job. Fourthly and lastly, there are reasons to glorify God. You ask, how can, how was God's name glorified through this? Notice the text again in verse 41. God glorified his name through Paul by using him to strengthen the churches of Syria and Cilicia. Don't misunderstand the text. Paul may have been the mouth that was speaking and talking and ministering, but God was working through him to do the actual spiritual work of strengthening those churches. But that's not all. God glorified his name through Barnabas by using him to train and equip Mark to be useful in ministry. Now, somewhat quickly raise an objection and say, hold on a second now. Where does it actually say he did that? Well, it doesn't say he did that, but here's what we do know. John, Mark, and Barnabas disappear off to Cyprus, and he spends time with him. And the next references we have to both Barnabas and John Mark is Barnabas is obviously a fellow worker with Paul in 1 Corinthians, and we'll see that. And we see John Mark is useful to Paul, and he's being commended to, to be used by other churches. So he's obviously grown in his ministry, and the time spent there was at least some time spent with Barnabas, and given Barnabas's pattern of behavior of going and getting and encouraging and training up others for the work of ministry, it makes a fair amount of sense to say that Barnabas was used by God. He, God glorified his name through Barnabas by using him to train and equip Mark to be useful in ministry. God is glorified by the growth 
of a struggling young man from fearful and turning back to useful and necessary in the work of ministry. Later, he was useful to Paul himself. Paul would tell Timothy, get Mark and bring him. He's useful to me. He was useful to the Colossian church where Paul commends him. He was useful to Peter. We know from church history that John Mark traveled with Peter. He was a helper to Peter. And we know also through tradition and church history that the gospel that Paul, that Mark wrote that bears his name was not only the first gospel written down, but it was Peter's sermons and teaching about Jesus that Mark took and transcribed and created that gospel document. Consider the evidence from Scripture about Mark and his now relationship with Paul. In Colossians 4 verse 10, Paul refers to Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, saying, If he comes to you, welcome him. Paul's perspective about John Mark has sufficiently changed that he no longer rejects him as unworthy, but commends him to be received by the Colossian church. Paul, in his personal letter to Philemon in verse 24, refers to Mark alongside Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke as my fellow worker. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, the apostle, now close to death, pleads with Timothy Timothy, to get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. By the way, if you know the history of those two men, Mark and Demas, there is a very interesting contrast. John Mark started poorly and finished well, but Demas, who started well, didn't finish at all, having loved this present world. Listen, my brother and my sister, how you began this Christian race is nothing in significance to how you can finish it. Remember the scripture where Paul teaches us in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, Brothers, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you're sitting here this morning and you struggled and slipped into sin, you began to walk away, you began to have doubts or fears, Maybe you've gotten yourself involved in some situations that you just wish you hadn't have, and you've made some mistakes. The race isn't over. Turn around. Confess your sin. Seek forgiveness. Seek God's grace. Pick yourself up. Fasten your eyes firmly on the prize that lies ahead, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and begin to run again. God restores and puts back into ministry those who return And he makes them useful once again. There's an old line out of the Old Testament book of Joel where he says, He restores the years the locusts have eaten. In other words, when discipline happens and the locusts eat up the crops, is the picture in the book of Joel, that God, when the people return in repentance and seek forgiveness, God will restore those years. He will give them back again. God glorified his own name by working through Barnabas to train and equip and bring John Mark forward in his spiritual maturity to be useful for ministry. And that's the gospel in action. Listen, beloved, Christ lived his life of perfect obedience to God so that his righteousness could be applied to us. Christ shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins in Hebrews 9 and verse 22. Christ suffered and died to remove the anger of God against us for our sin that we removed, sorry, that we committed against him. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, 25 and 26 that he set him forth as a propitiation 
meaning one who would remove the anger of God. Christ was buried in a tomb, proving to all that he was truly dead for three days and three nights. Christ rose again for our justification, meaning that we are declared right in God's sight by God's grace through faith in Christ. And the Bible tells us that Christ was raised for our sanctification so that we could walk in newness of life. And that newness of life happens as we trust in Christ for our salvation as we grow in sanctification and holiness. God glorified his own name by using Barnabas to mature, to train, and to equip John Mark to be useful in ministry. But wait, there's even more. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 6, Paul is writing to the Corinthian people and he's defending his rights as an apostle to refrain from working for a living alongside ministering. And he says this, Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? In 1 Corinthians, which is written well after this event happened in Acts chapter 15, Paul still saw Barnabas as his fellow worker with whom he was traveling in ministry, which would indicate that he and Barnabas had had some sort of reconciliation along the way. And as sad as their separation was, As much as we can learn from it, God is glorified when brothers and sisters humble themselves, admit their wrongdoing, and seek forgiveness and reconciliation with each other. And once again, it's the gospel in action. It's what we were saying last Sunday morning during communion, that God not only reconciles us to himself, he reconciles us to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. The gospel in action is displayed as you read that despite this sad and somewhat embarrassing episode, Paul and Barnabas were later reconciled to each other and continued in ministry with each other. God is glorified. There are reasons to glorify God from this passage, brothers and sisters, as the grace and forgiveness that we have received from God is extended to each other and received from each other. God is glorified as the gospel is lived out in and through our lives. So just to recap it all, four lessons. God works through still maturing ministers, so we must be very careful about making too much of mere men who are still growing in their maturity. I would add this. I have a simple... I think Christians ought to have heroes, but I have a very simple rule. The only good Christian hero is a dead Christian hero. I don't mean that in a nasty way. Uh, Those shelves right there behind me are all filled full of biographies. Lives and writings, the writings may be not there, but the lives anyway, of men and women who lived their lives in service for God. Those to me are role models and heroes that I seek to set or follow their example. You say, why dead ones? The simple reality is they have lived and ministered and finished the race without a charge being brought against them that stuck. Their lives have been lived all the way to the end. They've finished the race well. And those are the ones we ought to be looking to as heroes or role models, if you like. 
Be very careful about making too much of mere men who are still growing in their maturity. Secondly, be careful that we, you and I, do not allow our ministry passions to be enacted in a fleshly, sinful manner, such that we cause divisions and grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we have been called into this ministry. Brothers and sisters, be so careful. Be so careful. Take it out of the context of ministry for a second and broaden that out. It's easy for our passions, our ambitions, even godly ones, to be used in a fle- to be exercised in a fleshly way that runs over each other, can cause damage and harm. Their desires were not ungodly desires, and often our desires are not ungodly desires, but the way we carry them out can often cause injury and harm and hurt. And sadly, I know just a bit too much about that from experience. Be very careful that we do not allow our ministry passions to be enacted, our godly desires to be enacted in a fleshly, sinful manner that we cause divisions and grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we've been called into ministry. And you know, as you look through church history, one of the biographies I read uh, while it was away was a fellow named Robert Chapman, R.C. Chapman. And he was uh, a great man of God, um, very wealthy man, a lawyer living in the 19th century England and uh, he had had a, a successful law practice and gave it all up, gave all away all of his money except for just enough to buy himself a small house in a very Dickens-like area of uh, rural England. And uh, he ministered and served at, I believe it was called the um, Ebenezer, I believe it was the name of Ebenezer uh, Reformed Baptist Church. And uh, he served all of his life. And he was known as the Apostle of Love. He had a great concern that everything he did in, 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 re, in uh, exercising his ministry in the church, he would not grieve the Spirit of God. He did not allow, he was careful not to allow selfish ambition, not to, not to allow his goals and desires for ministry to be exercised in a fleshly, carnal way so as to cause divisions. In fact, he was called in by a number of churches that had gone through terrible difficulties, suffering because of division, suffering because of selfish ambition in which men were causing splits in the churches and he worked to see reconciliation. Not always successful, but he did work to see it. There is, there is, a, very care, there is a very serious thing, the sin that needs to be avoided. We must be so careful that we do not allow our ministry passions, our passions and desires for godly things to be exercised in such a manner that we cause divisions with our brothers and sisters. Thirdly, there is a great need in the church, both for elders and pastors, leaders who have a passion for the entire church to see it taught, to see it grow, to see it functioning as a living, thriving, organized body, building itself up in its most holy faith. And right alongside that big picture perspective, there is a desperate need for elders, for older saints like Uncle Jack to to be coming alongside the younger, less mature, still struggling believers to help them, encourage them, teach them and train them one-on-one to see them trained and equipped and useful for ministry. There is a great need for both those perspectives in our church. Fourthly, God is glorified as the gospel is lived out amongst us. God is glorified as his church is strengthened by God through the faithful ministry of weak, failing, fallen yet forgiven, and still growing ministers. 
God is glorified as young believers are trained, equipped, and strengthened and made useful for ministry through the faithful investment and time and effort from older saints. And lastly, God is glorified as His divided, separated children. Brothers and sisters are reconciled to each other in a humble spirit of forgiveness and grace. May God help us to live out the gospel in every situation of life. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning for your goodness and for your grace to us. Father, we thank you that you use still maturing ministers to do your work. And Father, in this little uh, five-verse paragraph, two great men of God who suffered, endured much for the sake of the gospel, and yet in this moment of weakness, acting according to the flesh, Father, we, we grieve a little bit. But, Father, we also rejoice as we see through the following pages of Scripture that they were indeed reconciled, that there was, there was unity brought again. And, Father, we give thanks for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we who are saved, washed in the blood of Christ, forgiven. Father, we give thanks that we can also be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. Help us, O God to exchange a prideful desire for what we want, for a humble desire to work and serve alongside of each other. Help us, O oh God, to recognize those different perspectives in ministry. Father, too, for one or two or maybe even more sitting here this morning at the church, Father, who are somewhat poked in their conscience as I was over relationships that have been allowed to divide and separate. Father, we pray that you would work in all of our hearts to bring reconciliation again, that we would be reunited with lost friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, that the gospel might be proclaimed a little more clear, a little more louder, not just by our voices, but our lives. Father, we ask you for your help. We give thanks, O oh God, for your goodness and this time in the Word together. And we do so in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. May God bless you all. Looking forward to seeing you all soon.